This podcast episode is sponsored by Salesforce.org. Salesforce.org is the social impact centre of Salesforce, focused on partnering with a global community of changemakers. They provide access to powerful technology that empowers changemakers to build a better world. Salesforce.org's Education Cloud gives higher education institutions a single shared view of students, alumni and staff in an integrated CRM platform to create personalised experiences at scale, transforming learner engagements into lifelong relationships. Hello everyone and welcome to The Edge, Accelerating Higher Education, Season 2 of our podcast series with Salesforce.org where we take a fresh look at higher education and digital transformation. This episode of the podcast is all about recruitment and admissions. And in this episode, we talk about the complex nature of reaching, recruiting and retaining students in the age of COVID-19 and far beyond. But also, of course, we had to also start understanding how immigration is going to work. How can we make sure that the students are able to arrive? So what is... I think kind of a unique thing about Finland is that us universities, we work uh, together very closely. So I think there are huge benefits to the increasing use of technology that we need to make sure we don't lose. I feel it's very important to move away from university centricity to Mm. student and, and student data centricity, kind of providing possibilities for really combining different focus areas from from different institutions. But I think what's still critical behind this is with the recruitment and admissions process, even though you're having more personalized communications, leveraging these channels, it's how do you really understand and make sense then of that data? To begin, let's travel back to Finland in the spring of 2020, when our guest was directing not only his own individual university response to COVID-19, but also coordinating an entirely new and COVID-secure way to process the entrance exams of thousands of students across 13 Finnish universities. But how did they do it? Year 2020 was a really special year for, for higher education of course, to, to many other sectors as, as, as well, including admissions. And uh, actually, in addition to, to being the vice president for education in, in, in Aalto, I also act uh, as a chair of the network of vice presidents of education of Finnish universities. And in, in that role, I, I had a kind of a responsibility together with, with my colleagues to navigate us through the difficult times in admission 2020. From the context, well, Finland is a fairly small country, around 6 million inhabitants, but we have 13 universities and, and within these universities, we actually have close to 300 different entrance exams. Uh, which have been traditionally executed in a, in a, in a quite traditional fashion, mainly uh, meaning papers and, and pens and, and big physical entrance exams. And, and that was something we couldn't think of last year. And, and we, we had to find ways to reduce the number of applicants being present, physically present in entrance exams, and, and also for doing that, 
using increasingly digital tools for, for the process. And uh, we actually adapted kind of a two-stage process mainly uh, for, for, for doing this. So we used kind of a screening phase, which was digitally carried out at the first phase. And then we had smaller groups of applicants present in campus in early summer 2020. And we actually managed to go on with the process fairly well and, and managed to actually find good students and, 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 and maintain the quality of the admission process, I, I think, overall in a, in a satisfactory way. And, you know, reflecting on it now, it sort of almost sounds like it was a fairly easy process, whereas, you know, I know that there would have been so many stakeholders involved, so whether that's universities and the, the different sort of flavours of each university and trying to make sure you respect that whilst also sort of streamlining or, or standardising the process to some extent. So how much of that do you think will carry forward after the pandemic has settled down? I think this has been a very important test uh, for, for us as, as universities in, in Finland. And, and we have cer- certainly good agreement on, on that. We, we are actually dealing with a too complex a, a system that we really need to streamline for, for the future. It has a kind of a digital facet. So how, how, how do we actually use different platforms or di- different systems for for supporting the process but but there's also quite important uh, the content aspect as said close to 300 different entrance exams is a result of strong traditions from various academic disciplines autonomy of of, of universities and what I now see is is growing discussion on the sort of common grounds in, in that. So what kind of a requirements are we, generally speaking, interested in, in, in finding our applicants? And what, what, what are the sort of the more, I would say, generic requirements for, for, for student selection also through, through entrance exams? So, so I think we are willing to find ways to to reduce the complexity but it'll take some time because it's it's such a complex network of things and and if i may continue i mean we have talked about entrance exams when we're talking about admissions there there's also other aspects that we need to consider uh, for instance we have recently increased the role of diploma or of uh, upper secondary school diploma in student admission and also increasingly providing routes to open university courses to degree education. So it's a combination of different alternative routes to to higher education. And now we're sort of taking a more comprehensive stance on how this works as as an entity and, and what are the elements that we need to actually sort of fine-tune or, or even more, more dramatically develop in, in order to make sure that, that students really find their places and, 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 and future careers in a kind of effective and meaningful way. It's, a, it's an important point, actually, also, also the orientation aspect of the, the process of introducing new, new students, getting new students well-engaged to, 
to academic community. We have actually started the development of the orientation way before COVID-19 pandemic, at least in Alta University. And the principle has been that we have uh, wanted to introduce new digital elements also to, to orientation without compromising or without uh, giving up the, the more traditional physical opportunities, uh, walking around campuses and, and, and meeting, meeting tutors in, in groups, etc. So increasingly supplementing the, the orientation offering, if I, if I may say so, in, in digital ways, videos and, and different kinds of uh, game-like approaches, even providing more flexibility for new students in, in different places, more accessibility and, and sort of also robustness for different kinds of, of complex situations such as, such as the COVID pandemic. And, and finally, the, the surprising thing for many of us like a year on has been how, you know, new university numbers haven't been for the most part sort of negatively affected. And if anything, there's been a slight uptick um, which we have seen in sort of challenging times before that people go back to education. Part of that is promising and part of it sort of hides a slightly more complicated situation in which, you know, some students are reveling and and and, and doing very well on the situation. Some are obviously suffering, you know, in terms of their own well-being. So I just wondered what are the ways that that might develop to help support that varying student population? It's a very uh, important and and also uh, I would say very versatile set of things that are related to, to this. What happened during COVID pandemic was obviously a kind of a very quick shift to 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 remote education and at the outset there were many solutions that i would say were far from from optimal from from the student uh, and also from the teacher's point of view but i i think we have really learned mm. during the past year and and what i see currently is is much more well thought approaches to digital education, uh, keeping in mind the interaction and uh, sort of a sense of belonging, which is very important in, in digital world in, in particular. And of course, we have to continue that in, in the future. Also, workload issues, it's in this new situation where ways of working are changing or, or have changed. It's, it's sometimes very hard to realistically assess or estimate what kind of a workload do we do we actually cause by different arrangements? So this is something we I think we have to continue very very carefully. Not to mention all the support services for for well being that we we also need in 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 pairing the the academic work in in, in teaching and education. But it's a very important an interesting challenge for, for higher education. And I, I really feel we need to use the momentum now as we have all the experiences in, in our mind and like to see very ambitious developments in digital pedagogy also in, in the coming years. 
So just to sign off, um, are there any other examples of how technology has been useful or, or what you'd like to see more of from technology uh, in terms of recruitment and admissions? So just thinking about some of the innovations out there, whether it's chatbots or using different platforms. And then the other question that I ask our guests is just around any sort of forms of inspiration that you've had in this space. So whether that's reading or other people or projects that you found interesting? Well, for the first part of your question, I, I think the level of development or discussion that I would like to, to mention in addition to what we already discussed is, is a kind of a, kind of a more fundamental digital evolution behind higher education. What I see in Finland, for instance, we have set out to develop quite ambitious, uh, I would say, student-centric and and student data-centric collaboration between universities, So, which would actually mean that uh, in the future we, we could be much more fluent in providing different learning opportunities across the universities that we that we have now it's uh, the student data for instance is very much university specific and uh, and 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 when we consider for instance the continuous learning or continuous education domain uh, of things i feel it's very important to move away from university centricity to hmm student and, and student data centricity kind of providing possibilities for really combining different focus areas from from different institutions and that that that's something that we are actually developing at the moment in, in Finland we have this digi vision at 2030 project going on which which is actually one source of inspiration also that you might might uh, appreciate uh, so uh, you can actually find some further information also through to their their website digivision.fi if i remember correctly so that's that's very important to kind of bear in mind that uh, we have different levels of technology utilization going on at the at, at the same time Back in the UK, I spoke to a pro-vice-chancellor of student success at a small and focused university with a consistently high student satisfaction and teaching excellence rating, where the challenge in COVID times has been how to successfully share the warmth of a university campus and community culture via the digital medium. On top of this, how do you make sure you meet your student numbers? And how do you keep said students happy during volatile times for the student experience? It turns out really thoughtful communication and engaging with student ambassadors are really key. And what's more, there's real opportunity in virtual open days in terms of access and inclusion. Here we go. So I've been at Marjon for five years, Plymouth Marjon University. I look after marketing and student recruitment, um, as well as student support and the welcome team now. So, so the reception desk, first people to meet you as you arrive. This is my first role in higher education. So although I've been here five years, I still feel like a relative newcomer to, to lots of people who've been in higher education their whole lives. My previous career was in was in retail. So I worked for Tesco for 13 years and then I worked for Riverford 
um, organic farms. It's particularly interesting, I think, transferring marketing skills and communication skills and thinking about loyalty to higher education, basically, to something where, you know, it's not like a supermarket where you can leave at any time very, very easily and where people switch. But you do have to think about how to keep people loyal to the brand, how to keep people happy. You have to think about what I would have called customer service, but really sort of student centeredness at Marjon. So it's really fascinating still kind of transferring those marketing skills to students. We are obviously, we're a small university and we'll have a very different experience to much bigger universities. One of the fantastic things actually about higher education as opposed to retail is how different universities support each other. And I've found it incredibly helpful being part of informal groups across different universities. So kind of WhatsApp groups with with people I know across a wide variety of universities, but also formal updates from from places like Guild HE and UUK, which help us to understand how the whole sector is being affected. I think most people in higher education would say it's been a pretty tough year. It's been a pretty tough year for everybody, so let's not pretend otherwise. Higher education has done an amazing amount of work, as have all sectors, to try and help the people they need to help, to try and try and do things right for students. They've been asked, uh, academics particularly, have been asked to do jobs that were never quite in their job description and been asked to develop skills that they never had. And I think for students, what has been really difficult is is the loss of the informal social activity. People meet their best friends for life at university and people have been able to meet so many fewer people. It's been harder for that to happen. So if people get on with everybody in their flat, they could be having an absolutely brilliant time. But if they happen not to, that can be much more tricky. The guidance that has come out has often been quite late. And I think that's been the case, you know, for for all sectors, schools, universities, NHS, everybody. It's been having to respond very, very quickly to changes. And so we've done a lot of kind of late night discussions and trying to interpret guidance ready for students to read in the morning. So that those things have been tricky. We've tried really hard, I think, put a big focus on just trying to be as clear as possible. But often we are saying, this is what we know so far. We will have to tell you more when we know it. I think that's been the case across the sector. In terms of what student experience is like, has been like, I think at Marjon, we've been able to do quite a lot of face-to-face teaching because we have small class sizes anyway and we have quite a lot of space per student so we're blessed in that sense we don't have huge lectures with 300 people in which would be really hard to socially distance so generally we're about small class sizes and, and small group discussions and we've been able to keep a lot of that going up to the latest lockdown lockdown three in which case it's only been the the courses we're allowed to bring back so it's basically key worker courses, I suppose, in summary, the government here have said that we're allowed to teach face to face, other courses shouldn't return. So it's a very quiet campus at the moment. We expect that to be in place, you know, definitely for another few weeks. And we're just waiting and students are desperately waiting to hear when they'll be able to come back. I know when we previously spoke, part of the challenge in the last year, and going forward, how do you convey that sense of what your university is about. So obviously with a university like Plymouth Marjon, there is a sense of, a real sense of community. It's a smaller university. It has a real sense of how to look after its student population um, in a way that possibly isn't going to happen at, at one of the larger universities. So how did you get around that sense of building community and yeah, continuing to communicate with your students? 
yeah, that was, I think that was my biggest worry, actually, you know, in terms of things to stress about through last summer. We know that a lot of our students tell us when they arrived. The reason they chose to come to Marjan is because they came to the campus and they spoke to people and just felt it was right. It, it just felt, it felt warm, it felt welcoming. You know, they everything from I met the academic who I'd be spending most time with and I, I liked what they were saying to I went to get a coffee and had a really great chat with them to the personal reception was really helpful. You know, so across the whole university, the feeling across the campus convinces students that this is a place they could call home and they could live and they could be happy and comfortable. And to try and put that across in a Teams meeting, we were really quite nervous about. And effectively, what I felt we were asking academics to do was, I I kept thinking about about talk show hosts. So take Graham Norton, who is extremely skilled at what he does and demonstrates, you know, puts across warmth and compassion, entertainment without having a chat with the audience necessarily, but just, you know, has a chat with other people and puts puts that across. Academics are really used to doing that face-to-face, but to do that in a Teams meeting where you can't actually interact with the applicants for safeguarding reasons, actually they're effectively putting across a TV show. What we were trying to get them to do was to bring in student ambassadors who they knew, so not not student ambassadors who they didn't know, but student ambassadors who were on the course, who they got on with, so they could sort of demonstrate and chat the rapport that they have with their students, how well the students can talk about the course, how well they know each other, you know, that they do actually know each other's name and they can have a laugh together, because that's not the case at many universities. You wouldn't kind of have that same uh, interaction as, as we get here. So it was trying to put that across and it was tricky. I think we did it pretty well because, you know, we got we got good conversion from those sessions that we ran and students did turn up in September. And, you know, they found that when they got here, you know, that it was as we had tried to put across. But it's certainly it's one of the tricky things about the limitations of technology is the the interaction you get in a real room where people might glance across the room and their eyes would meet and they'd smile or they'd have a little chat as they're walking in or they'd you know see people's clothes and think they dress like me I'm going to get on with them so all of those sorts of little interactions that happen around the edge of a normal open day just it's just almost impossible to replicate the tiny things online and, and that was our worry but it worked okay but I'd love to do it better. I really loved your example when we spoke before about working in retail and and the things that matter to people and, and the sort of parallel between retail and higher education. And I think it was about uh, your experience of doing a refit. Yeah. My first couple of jobs in Tesco were working in the team that managed the marketing for new stores and extensions and refits. And one of the projects I did when I was working in store for two months as part of that, I was working in a store having a huge extension. And I did some research with customers talking about the extension. And it was really obvious, and it was obvious from my experience being in the store at the same time, that actually they didn't mind they didn't mind the store changing as long as they were kept really well informed of what was happening and why it was happening. If you missed out those things, if you didn't put focus on them, they got very angry and really upset and would not want to come back, even when the store was magically extended and had all these wonderful things in it. They they were too angry about the process of change. And so, you know, one of our roles when a store was going through a refit or an extension was always, it it was expected to have an uplift in sales at the end of it, but you had to minimise the reduction in sales while it was happening and you also had to make sure people were keen to come back at the end and that they hadn't gone off somewhere else to find another store I guess the lesson and I think I see how good stores are at this now is really that 
people can cope with change quite well if they're kept really well informed of it. And I think I've, I've had that playing in my head throughout the whole pandemic, <laughs> that we have to keep people as informed as we possibly can. Even when we don't know something, we have to try and tell them what we don't know and why and when we hope to know it. I've been doing a weekly update to students on coronavirus since September. And I've just kept that ticking every week just so that we're as honest as possible about what we know at this moment and how things are looking at this moment. I think that's helped. The other thing that has definitely helped through this period is we've run regular Q&A sessions. So some on specific things like what the case numbers are like or a testing centre and how you should come and use the testing centre and some more general things where we've got Rob Warner, our Vice-Chancellor, um, in to, to talk to students and to answer questions. So there could be any general questions. So those have been incredibly helpful. And the other thing that we have is we have something called Chatback, whereby students can ask anonymous questions on our app. And through that, I think I often get messages through that. That comes directly through to me. And I often see things saying, thank you for letting me ask this anonymously, because you can then, you know, tell us all the answer and I don't have to be responsible for having asked it, basically. So that's also been helpful to know how students are feeling often, how emotional they're feeling about something, you know, and how difficult they're finding things. They can say it anonymously where they might feel, you know, embarrassed or nervous to say it straight to somebody's face but it so it's been incredibly helpful as a as a as a piece of communication yeah we meant we talked also before about that communication so reaching out to prospective students that perhaps hadn't considered university before did you use any different sort of channels of communication this time around or or, or tinker around with any sort of technology to achieve that we didn't use particularly different channels. We did try to think about where they would be and, you know, catch them at moments when they might not be thinking about it. So we did quite a lot of radio. We did Spotify advertising. We did various different social media advertising, targeting people in different ways. We we spend quite a lot of our digital marketing on pay-per-click and lots of that would traditionally be looking at people who are already looking for a course. But we tried to think about different things that people might be looking for. To, to target them so you know rather than just searching psychology degree in the southwest or psychology degree in Plymouth or psychology degree maybe they might be looking for other things but not just you know not actually searching for a degree so a different thinking processes around how we might be able to put this idea in front of people we also did we kept on booking and rebooking these things but we also did as lockdown started and stopped six sheets and 48 sheets so we we did them when the not when the roads were completely quiet but when the roads were a bit busier again and we targeted sort of specifically places where we thought people would be who might it might not have occurred to 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 think about university so we did quite a lot of local stuff because I think generally if people aren't people aren't going to suddenly plan to move in the next six weeks but they may well plan to go to university up the road in the next six weeks so as it got later we got more and more local. Interesting and and I know that you you did experience working with a, a sort of chatbot and then also Unibuddy you mentioned didn't you about ambassador part of things as well. Yeah we did so we we started working with Unibuddy before Christmas so we were in the early phases of it when the pandemic hit and it was pretty obvious immediately that that would be important and it it definitely has been the student ambassadors who we trained on Unibuddy you know they were people who were warm and welcoming and friendly but also could write well and express themselves well in writing and were really responsive to the questions they got so basically applicants could can go onto their course page 
and it will say, I'm Georgina, chat to me about this course. And they can have chat backwards and forwards that's that's safe and regulated, you know, where they're not sharing personal numbers or anything, but it's, it's done on a platform. And that I think that was really, really helpful because our students, you know, they're just brilliant at that. The, the, the student ambassadors are so good by far and away the best people to convince somebody um, because they're very genuine about the way they talk about Marjan. They, they, they're in love with it, it's fair to say. So when they talk, they are convincing. So that worked. And we also did, we tested a chatbot that was available free to, I think, to all universities, actually, if it was about coronavirus. So if you were chatting about coronavirus, you could put in those questions. And we used that for, well, probably about two or three months, I think. So particularly at the beginning, when there were so many questions about, can I get a refund on my accommodation? Can I drop back to pick my stuff up? Um, You know, this was in the sort of early April and kind of the very last week in March when the lockdown happened, when there were just, there was so many questions and it was so tricky and we thought the chatbot could help to answer those. And I think it did. It certainly take time to train it. So we had somebody training the chatbot every time we worked out we needed a new question and a new policy and a new answer. But we did think it could be something that that we could keep going. It's just they're relatively costly. So again, kind of small university, it's about working out is is the cost worth it for a small number of students. That's always, always the way up for a small university. The pandemic has given big challenges in lots of areas, but it has definitely brought some really interesting opportunities. And one of the most exciting is something that people, I think, have been trying to work towards for some time. But the fact that everybody is now much more used to using technology means that, for example, a student who is in a relatively rural area and not particularly well off could not previously have afforded to go to five different open days all over the country and to try and work out which of those five universities is the best one for them. Whereas a student on a well-connected transport network or with a parent who will drive them or with enough money for the train tickets could do that. And that, that was certainly evident. So students who were better off could afford to look at different universities and could afford to travel further and could afford to go to the university that was right for them rather than the university that happened to be nearest to them. And I think this gives you know, a huge opportunity, not only for people to study from further afield, so particularly if they live rurally and around Cornwall and Devon, that's obviously, you know, a big question for us. People may not want to leave or may not even be able to leave where they are. They may be caring for people, they may be supporting family businesses, but they could still study because they can do it in more of a hybrid way now. But equally, for applicants, they can now look at universities all over the country. And I think that's just a brilliant thing because they don't have to get on the train and pay to travel there and pay for a hotel and everything else. So I think there are huge benefits to the increasing use of technology that we need to make sure we don't lose. Um, And so we're really conscious of the fact that we need to keep the ability for a student from anywhere to kind of get under the skin of Marjan, understand what Marjan's about without having to pay a lot to come all the way down here and see us. Are there any other aspects of recruitment and admissions that will change either in 2021 or sort of going forward, hopefully after this pandemic has sort of settled down, you know, things that you'd like to retain like that sort of democratisation of open days and how prospective students like the broadening out of where they might be able to get to? 
I think making that as as good and efficient as possible is is going to be the key thing. I think in terms of kind of general statement about student recruitment, but actually we do a lot of work, specific work in terms of widening participation. And that has always traditionally been very local schools. So it's looked like student ambassadors or members of staff going into local schools and doing careers fairs or, or running sessions that are relevant to their curriculum or talking about what it's like to go to university doing assemblies that sort of thing and I think and they're generally targeted at schools where there is lower participation in higher education so what this gives the opportunity to do is is for that series of events and activities to really broaden that out and to take that into some of the rural areas particularly I'm thinking you know far end of Cornwall and northern parts of Devon and places like that and, and into Somerset where we wouldn't normally go to do that sort of high intensity activity but actually we can do because now it's almost all online. And so that means we can build relationships with schools much better. So that's one area. In terms of, you know, just just generally being able to access the university, we'll definitely be keeping things like virtual campus tours. It's not just, you know, go on and look around and click at different parts of the university, but it's actually a student ambassador on the call with you, touring you through and demonstrating it. So they get to chat and tell tell you about, oh, this is, you know, this part of the university and this is how we use it. And here's the sports centre and this is when I go there. Um, so it is actually a it is actually a, a you know a personalized experience and it's conversation. We'll definitely be keeping those going because I think they're brilliant. And what we also want to do is just create a lot more content so that we're sort of always on and people can come and get as much content as they want when they want it rather than waiting for the open day in three weeks on Saturday to hear it if you know what I mean so there's there's a sort of combination of personalized experience which is at a specific time and it's a conversation versus the very good content which can be consumed whenever it's suitable for you so it could be two o'clock in the morning and you want to watch loads of videos about what this course is like so we have to make sure we've got enough content for that so so those will be I think some of the big priorities for us over the coming months. I loved Katie's Tesco analogy about communication and the ability of technology to make recruitment and admissions as good and efficient as possible whilst retaining the human element. To find out what shape recruitment and admission technology might take, I spoke to a higher education industry expert to hear what influences are shaping the development of technology in this space. Yeah, Jane, brilliant to have you back on the EdTech podcast. So welcome. Thank you so much. Delighted to be here and, and appreciate you having me back. You know, just sort of reflecting slightly on the past year and universities. So thinking about recruitment and admissions, we've got, you know, assessments again this year, GCC's A-levels uh, off the table in England. So assessment and how to identify students is up in the air. Um you know, campus tours that would usually take place um, have shifted to virtual campus tours. So that's all different. And the actual uh, university offering is obviously completely different. So, you know, whereas perhaps uh, back in the summer, we had more of a hybrid um, offering for the most part, you know, courses where they can be are, are now online. Um, so that sort of brings me to conversations that you're having with universities and you know how you think all these changes are affecting universities and and how they go about communicating with their student populace as well so you're right the I mean there's been just continued volatility certainly for recruitment and admissions individuals and this is an area that I'm 
incredibly passionate about. For those of you who might know me, I started my career in recruitment and admissions, so it is still near and dear to my heart. Uh, and, and quite a big question you ask. <laughs> uh, as you're right, there's been you know so much upheaval, obviously, for universities globally, uh, certainly within the UK and, and more widely in Europe and EMEA. And I still think many institutions in many ways are having to be more reactive as much as they want to be strategic, uh, just because there, there continues to be so much change and, and understanding on how obviously we can keep our entire communities safe and healthy right now. There's also been this tremendous opportunity, and I'm sure I'm not the only one to, to have said this, uh, about the sector in general, and especially for recruitment admissions departments, as when this happened, especially here in Europe and in the UK, this part of the world, as opposed to further afield in Australia and New Zealand, for instance, they really had to reimagine overnight because they were in the middle of recruiting and starting to enroll students. And so many of them have really thought about, okay, how can they be effective um, and efficient during this time, especially given the impact of international students uh, and starting to really reinvent their entire business models. And I think this is happening at a higher strategic level, but certainly with recruitment admissions being the first part of the entire student journey and obviously critical in, in terms of overall funding, they are starting to say, okay, well, what else can we be doing differently uh, in general? And so you start to see emergence of some areas such as micro-credentialing or offering short-term courses, especially for lifelong learners. As we know, there's a huge set of the population who, especially with COVID, impacting industries and making all industries reimagine individuals who want to be reskilled or upskilled during this time. And so the universities, I think, are thinking of innovative ways that they can go out and recruit new students, as well as their current students overall. Uh, further to this, somebody said to me recently, you know, previously we were in this information age, and now it's really going to be the age of, of the customer, which I think is especially true for prospective students, you know, across the board, that we need to be able to meet them where they are. You know, technology has changed the landscape globally for everybody, that we're all used to using devices and having much more personalization, tailor, customized uh, messaging. And I think that's really pivotal, especially as students now have their first experience online. And so universities need to be able to meet those prospective students really where they're at. And I can certainly expand on, on you know, how we see universities innovating within this space. Yeah, actually, I mean, if you have any examples of ways of using technology to reach some of that sort of customer-centric approach, that would be really great. Yes, I mean, I think, you know, very much it's universities that we hear are starting to think about that front end, thinking about more multi-channel communication, right, personalized communication and, and multiple different journeys. Basically, this company now called Voodoo, which you should really see, that offers like this video, it'll signpost, like if you're at, I don't know, an academic building, it'll say, you know, pause here to learn more about our academic programs. It allows you to pause, go and see the academic programs, and then almost go back to the tour. It's really interesting. So that's Voodoo. Yeah, Voodoo, V-U-D-O-O. So if a student is coming on and they might be interested in majoring, for instance, or studying in biology, uh, the tour could be and the video could be more customized so that they could see and click into a view around their laboratories, uh, around what it looks like to study in, in terms of that discipline, uh, allows them to pause and naturally is much more engaging. And, and then institutions can actually measure that 
and see the data behind it so that they know actually what's resonating with their prospective students and what's most valuable for them. Um, so really revolutionizing kind of that campus tour, the recruitment and admission space uh, overall. So if we, we talked a little bit about chatbots already and how universities have been using that to seamlessly communicate with, with customers and be much more reactive and proactive in some cases. But there are some other areas around innovation, uh, as well as the virtual open days, where some institutions, there's one in the Netherlands that literally overnight was able to offer a virtual open day as an event. So traditionally, they hosted, you know, two, 300 prospective students on their campus, and they were able to, within, I think it was a couple of weeks, adapt that be able to have this as a virtual open day, putting all of their content online, being able to engage with prospective students um, and answer the questions that those students have. So that's that's one example. A second example is around um, something that literally has just come out very recently within Salesforce, which is being able to integrate marketing automation with WhatsApp. We know that, you know, students very much engage SMS and text messaging, and especially here internationally, I feel like WhatsApp is, is the channel to be on. And now being able to integrate it with marketing communication avails yet another channel for institutions to go out and personalize their communications um, and create that engagement with prospective students. And then the last area uh, where I think we're starting to see more adoption and, and innovation is with everything being online, how do you actually start thinking about almost virtual intake process? So now that you've gone out, you know, identified, recruited, enrolled the students, uh, how do you start to think about onboarding them within the institution really early on um, and starting to get them more engaged with faculty, with staff, with current students, so they feel welcomed and a part and that sense of belonging that we talk in talk so often about that sense of community, which I think is just more challenging with everything being virtual um, and starting to use technology in that way and being much more proactive and again, tailored in terms of your communications. And then just to go back to your earlier comment about micro-credentialing and universities also supporting lifelong learning, um, is there also a, a sort of infrastructure piece to that? Because obviously at the moment, the the sort of university setup uh, is for the most part quite traditional you know it operates around a, a sort of a well-known and worn student life cycle process um, and obviously moving away from that uh, will entail shifting some of those systems as well so can you tell us a little bit more about you know, how universities are going about that and what changes they need to make if they're thinking about doing that as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I fully appreciate that digital transformation is such a, a buzzword right now. Uh, and I know we worked uh, last year with with GIST, Universities UK, Emerge, and a few other partners around putting together a long-term technology strategy framework for universities as they really think about adapting their business models for the future and really what does infrastructure look like. Not surprisingly, when we were consulting with provost, vice chancellors, pro-vice chancellors and the like, you know, so many of them said part of their challenge is that individuals think about physical infrastructure but not traditionally as much about digital infrastructure. Um, and we could have a whole separate podcast and conversation about you know, skills and, and making sure that you have the right individuals that can 
also uh, have a seat at the table to have the conversations around digital infrastructure, which was something that, that was in that report. But more around, you know, recruitment and admissions, especially thinking about this as, a, as an area within the institution, you know, I think there's a real opportunity for these universities to innovate in this space. It's traditionally been, you know, the, the SRS system or the SMS system that's been the backbone across an institution. And, and certainly that technology still plays a, a critical role in terms of registrations, in terms of reporting and compliance. Uh, but increasingly, institutions are, are really looking to platforms to support that end-to-end -end student journey and opportunities where they can um, leverage platforms that are agile and allow them really to innovate um, and even integrate with other, you know, ed tech startups and, and uh, as well as building from their own individual IT departments, which I think is even more critical today, uh, especially with the students wanting, as I said before, this, you know, online experience, mobile first. Uh, and so what we're starting to see here, which I think has been the case in other areas, namely in America, is almost a decoupling of the SIS um, and rethinking of traditional systems and, and how they're really supporting these institutions. Having a platform that allows you to leverage marketing automation to have that more personalized, customized experience that allows you to create a community that frankly allows you to better serve students um, and sets that experience up from the beginning. And then you can continue that experience for them when they're on campus. Uh, so I think this is this is going to be really a novel approach and frankly revolutionary. And when we think about that traditional infrastructure uh, and where I'm seeing certainly in a senior leadership level, these conversations happening, but certainly within departments as they're dealing with this day to day and have to consider, you know, how do we make it easier for that faculty staff, especially as they're remote, where we really see an opportunity especially with it, you know, being Salesforce and a technology company is for us to start to deliver products and solutions that are really tailored for the education industry, the education sector. Um, and so one area has been on the admissions aspect. We want to be able to deliver this more unified experience, both for students where it's very much customized and then being more efficient for faculty and staff. And so we've created a new product called Admissions Connect, uh, which does just that, as I mentioned, you know, better creates this connection between the faculty, staff and students um, to offer this personalized community and portal for prospective students to second of all, streamline the application review process, especially if you're sharing this material across your institution with other faculty and staff in different schools or departments and overall providing a more holistic perspective on candidates um, and enrolled students for strategic decisions moving forward. One thing that came up in all the guest recordings I did for this episode was how the landscape in recruitment and admissions just got a whole lot more complex as we move into hybrid teaching modes with students at home or in host countries in varying lockdown situations and varying time zones. Layer this up with differing experiences of anxiety, isolation or disadvantage due to immigration paperwork going awry or being delayed due to COVID and you have a perfect storm. Heading back to Finland, I spoke to a specialist in international student recruitment at Finland's most international and diverse university to hear how they were applying a multi-channel strategy to reach all of their student community wherever they are. 
fantastic to be connected here with Joanna Kumbula, who is the Senior Specialist for International Student Recruitment uh, Strategy at Tampere University. So welcome, Joanna. Thank you so much for having me. Joanna, perhaps to start, you could tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do and also the university that you work at. So, you know, what types of courses it runs, the types of students that you have there and just give our listeners a little bit of a feel for your day to day world. Yeah. So, yeah, I've been working in this field for now about, I believe, about 18 years. And this is a kind of a new sector international student recruitment that is in Finland. So I've worked in different positions in different universities in Finland, international admissions, credential evaluation, marketing recruitment, all kinds of jobs. And presently I'm at the Tampere University, which is kind of a new university. We were established actually only three years ago. But the thing is that before us, it was two universities. So we are brilliant product of a merger and our university at the moment is the second largest research university we offer education in different fields our research focus are in technology and like in most of Finland we offer education both in Finnish and English so yes definitely last year was was very unique in these 18 years that I've been in the field and of course the first news broke about this a very viral um, flu <laughs> called COVID-19. It was actually through the Chinese students hmm. um, who we have in Finland and in our university and the personal experiences they had. And never back in like 12 months ago would I have thought that things would change so rapidly so it was first about the uh, individual concerns of our Chinese students like about their family back home about not knowing really what's going on and then slowly but surely it came to everyone's life so mid-March when uh, for example we went so we as in Finland went to lockdown that was actually also about the time when we were getting ready to announce um, sort of the admission results of our international Uh, master's admissions so of course we had to look at all the procedures and everything that we are used to doing in a different way everybody being stuck at home how do we process certain paperwork how do we let young people know that yes it's safe to come when we don't even know if it is and I think everybody was very optimistic last spring we all thought that yeah yeah it's like by summer (laughs) yeah everything will be fine and, and we'll get rid of it I was just getting started. So I think one of the key issues that we had is like how to openly communicate with students that we are so used to being the kind of the source of information. We know what's going on. We know what you should be doing when you travel to a new country, start a new program and all these things. But now we were like kind of as clueless as the students were as in what's going to happen. But our role went into kind of interpreting what the culture is and how to interpret it. So if you knew what happens in your own country, 
how to compare it to, for example, what happens in Finland. So if we say lockdown, what does it actually mean? Because lockdowns were very different. Mm-hmm. Uh, Finns still went out, had walks, and and we didn't have masks uh, last spring. They came actually after the summer into our lives. So it was kind of like a way of un- making sure that students understand that this is what happens here when we talk about numbers or when we talk about how daily life has changed but also of course we had to also start understanding how immigration is going to work how can we make sure that the students are able to arrive so what is I think kind of a unique thing about Finland is that us universities we work uh, together very closely so we have the same procedures we have a lot of national data systems and procedures so we all got together online and basically every day work together to figure out how we can do things a lot of the um National procedures were influenced by also about this because in Finland, usually a lot of domestic students are accepted into universities through entrance examinations. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine at lockdown when you're supposed to have entrance examinations for even thousands of people, that's not going to work out well. And so we had to handle also those. But with the international students, what we did is we just reached out and went, what do you need? What kind of information do you need? How do we start this cooperation with you? And then we also had the Ministry of Education and Culture in Finland come in and ask us, like, what needs to be done? Are there, for example, legislation that needs to be changed? And something was changed. So some of our students could postpone their studies to this fall semester. So they could take that one year and then figure out what's going on. But most of our students actually says, yes, we're still like the minute it's okay, we'll be coming there. So what happened next was, of course, we need to make sure that because we didn't know, make sure that students could start their studies. And majority of our international students, (laughs) together with domestic students, uh, first year students have started their studies fully online, whether they are actually back home. But some of them have been coming in during the fall semester. But online studies, it, it has been the way our students have started their studies. And actually, our numbers did go up. When you look at the actual statistics of student admissions, in, a number of international degree-seeking students did go up this fall semester compared to 2019. So we'll see, of course, how they can continue because, of course, some of them still have issues of, of travel and immigration. So we'll see how we can continue. Well, overall, we don't, Tampere University, we do not have entrance examinations for our international admissions. So students are admitted through previous um, sort of like bachelor's degrees and such. And of course, we had the issues of IELTS and TOEFL to figure out if, for example, required language test uh, results would arrive in time. Um, So those we had to consider. And of course, in our procedures, we have this, especially with the master's students, where we need to make sure that we know the previous diplomas and the content of those and the whole process of credential evaluation. So we had some tricky situations there, but luckily for us last year, admissions is run January, February. So all of these procedures. So we were kind of like 
most of the work was done by the time everything went locked down. So it wasn't like our headache last year was more like with the Chinese students, when is the Chinese New Year's when universities closed down? So those are usual problems. So actually, it's something that is affecting us now as we speak. What I was just about to say, so you were back January, February. So how is it different this time around? Yeah, actually, just before this talk that we're having, we were discussing about situations in different countries that are students able to provide the documentation that they need for international admissions. And we want to make sure that we know what's going on and that we want to make sure that we have the necessary flexibility when it comes to these situations. But it is really difficult to get that overall idea of uh, other country what's going on there are universities for example able to provide records of their students graduations and and so on so this is really tricky and the information is coming in a bit like a bit by bit and usually these kind of things unfortunately are still like the responsibility of the student like they are the ones of course saying like hey my country can't do this or my university can't do that so it's it's still I'm kind of missing that global network of universities being able to inform each other, like, hi, (laughs) we're closed down, we can't provide these things, it would be so much faster. And that would enable students to be actually mobile, is, is making sure that the networks of institutions works, and it's not on the individual person to make sure that, hey, by the way, in my country, everything is in lockdown when at the moment in Finland, yes, we are working, but our universities are closed. There's some staff members in the campuses, but basically teaching is outside. So that's kind of situations we're trying to figure them out, making sure that we can still run the processes, but also that we hear the individual problems that students might have in obtaining their paperwork. And how many international students do you have? Well, um, at the moment, with the international students, we have about, in bachelor's and master's level, altogether about 900 students. And then at PhD level, I would say about 500 students. In admissions, we are talking about, at the moment, I think the number is about three and a half maybe 3,000-something applications. Deadline was just last week on Wednesday for master's, and actually our bachelor's admission closes tomorrow. So (laughs) I don't know the exact numbers because one thing that never changes, whether there's a pandemic or not, is that people always leave it last minute to make sure that their their application or any kind of work is done. So deadline is the best motivator still (laughs) in everything that happens, especially with students. So yeah, there's a lot of applications, a lot of movements going on, but it's tricky in these times to make sure that because one of the things in, I think, all of overall in Finnish admissions or admissions to Finnish universities is the fact that we want to treat all equal, that there are no preferences, everybody gets the same treatment and a fair shot at a uh, university placement. Mm-hmm. So in these times when different countries and individuals can provide maybe not all of the documentation, it's, it's something that, of course, our university wants to tackle to make sure that the best candidates can make their process as smooth as possible. It's such a good point because diversity and inclusion issues were pretty front and centre last year especially and you can 
you know, easily imagine how existing divisions become greater and greater because, you know, even the usual processes are strained. And so, yeah, it's it's encouraging to hear you you say that and, th- you know, that you're thinking about that as well. I suppose with all these changes that you went through last year and all these challenges, was technology useful in any of those situations in terms of adapting, whether that was, you know, communicating with students in various different situations or in any part of the process, so whether that was admissions or communications or actually getting them used to the university, whether it was somewhere they wanted to go to as well? Yeah, I think everyone's lives have been been changed in different ways by tech that is available to us, um, whether it's it's studying or, or getting, you know, those personal contacts. And I think we're all adjusting. And what in Finland, what I'm especially proud about how Finland changed last spring is the fact how quickly we could put all of our teaching online. And I think that's affected really positively also the student numbers in the way that we could reach out quite comfortably to students like, hey, you want to chat online about these things and, and having those like orientation days that you usually have in big lecture rooms. So relative is like in Finland, a big lecture room might be quite tiny in, in some other countries, but that we quite well established everything here. What we like the first thing we started to worry about is like is the tech up to date in the places where our students are. So what we didn't need to do is like introduce anything like really new and different. I think it was just that having it so much being part of everything we do that it's, it's everything was like dependent on the tech that's kind of the maybe the tricky part for most of us is that you couldn't have the other option of like seeing the person like personally everything had to be done online so I think that was big bigger challenge than actually introducing anything new that we needed to do I think what we and what I've talked to my European colleagues in different countries is that this fall when we've been doing the recruitment circles when we are quite used to going out there and and meeting students in fairs and through our agents and like establishing those personal contacts for the first time that has been very tricky to finding new ways of doing it and I think it's been tricky situation also for those providers for example those typical traditional student fairs have not existed in the last six to ten months so they've had to really quickly establish new ways. And I think for us Finns, and I think maybe for the Nordic people, it has been quite easy for us because we have access to everything when it comes to tech. We are big developers in tech. So we can't say Nokia anymore that confidently in Finland, but we can still like say that whatever tech resource you, is needed, we have good access to it. Um, we don't have to in this country, for example, ever really worry about mobile connections being expensive. Mm-hmm. So that's why we sometimes forget that for a student being connected to us online might be a bit expensive because of the mobile connections or such. Right. So it's been it's been an interesting kind of a 
like I said, 18 years in the field and I'm looking at the you know, like usual things, but I have to consider new things. When I started like back in the day and we tried to figure out like, let's do like websites for international students. We back then really had to think about like, hold on, this is the group of students we are looking at and we want to introduce videos, but they actually have to connect to very complicated like networks to get their mobile running. So we can't like rely on videos. And now kind of, I feel in a way, it's kind of a similar situation that if we talk about certain like let's say Iranian students mm -hmm. so how can you access in Tehran how can you access the networks and the software or anything that we use in teaching or in recruitment or anything so it's kind of going back to the basics and thinking about ways of how others use tech for us I think it was simple even though it's been kind of also exhausting um of being just in front of your laptop all the time and not having those personal contacts. But it's, it's also thinking how, how do students in China, Brazil or Indonesia, how can they access those same platforms and tech that we can? If that made sense. It, it totally does make sense. I'm, I'm imagining your students in a sort of a matrix, see, uh, not like the matrix, but a matrix mm. of um, you have got students in different situations, different countries, you know access to technology or not and consideration so do you have a kind of way of managing their pathway which helps to streamline those communications or how do you go about doing that because it's so complex depending on who you're talking to as well yeah I think that's the that's the key part about us because we we are in student recruitment we're international student recruitment we're still and we, uh, when I say we we talk about Finland still a bit of a small player so we don't have huge like resources so what we've had to do is a lot of about finding that middle way path of of like, can most students access this and that's also with the new students actually the first thing we asked when we realized that hold on this lockdown is not going to be two weeks we asked them it's like do you have access to different resources this is what we're kind of planning can you be online for the studies and very few but still some of them said unfortunately not from my country or with my resources so that those are the students who mostly postponed the start of their studies until this this fall. But majority were actually, I was a, a bit surprised about the bigger number of students saying, yeah, yeah, no problem. Yeah, no problem. It's more being the, let's say, the time differences. Yeah. <laughs> those things you can't really <laughs> tackle. And then kind of like more these cultural ways of, of learning in a different way. So it's still kind of the same problems that we've always had, but it's it's, it's the tech really hasn't been, and uh, we're still figuring out. <laughs> we're still figuring out because it looks like this year still a lot of the like the markets we want to be able to reach. We most probably can't travel there next fall yet either because vaccinations and everything happens at very different paces in different places. So so it's still a bit tricky to say. Do we manage that kind of a situation? I think it's it's been mainly luck <laughs> and cooperation together with the students about finding the best ways of working because the students still want to go. They, yeah. they still are willing. And that's something I learned through this last year is that 
whatever happens, if even a pandemic like this doesn't stop mm. them. <laughs> no, it's very true. I remember in an earlier part of the year doing recording and, you know, everyone very nervous about whether students would turn up and what would it mean and would it mean that MOOCs, you know, explode again. And, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and then the, you know, the reality is, is that almost in an emergency, the interest in university and learning goes up, doesn't it, I think. So that's a positive to come out of it. Yeah, uh, so far that I know, in, in the Finnish universities that have already closed the international admissions for master's programs, the numbers have gone up. Yeah. So it's 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 we're still early days to say what kind of students they are. Are they just looking a way out, but or they are interested? But I've uh, talked to a couple of agents, for example, in different countries, and they said that students at this point, like end of last year, were at this point where they're like, okay, hold on, I can't put my life on hold. Yeah. And wait until something happens. That this is the time to do something so they are very eager now they've learned that in most places the universities are there to help out like and assist to make sure that students for example get get their visa papers and can do all these processes that they need to be able to start just as their older brother did or uncle did back in the day because that's why they often want to it's like i saw someone else do it I want to do it differently. Okay, I can't. There's a pandemic, but hold on, I get help. So, so it's it's kind of like they are really interested in going abroad. I do think, yeah, definitely, students are seeing this like the globalness of this whole thing. Kind of like one of our programs, for example, is a international master's program in public and global health, and the students in that, you can imagine are living kind of the most interesting study times they can ever live and when it comes to research or just seeing what happens in the world now and again they were one of our most like popular programs and and I wasn't surprised at all because I think with the young people there's still the kind of the wish and, and need to make a difference and what better way than getting educated and going out there and, and maybe going into research and so on. So, yeah, definitely, I think, yeah, last spring, everybody was like, okay, this is it. international student recruitment is dead. I was like, well, I don't know. And when we did our first survey with the new students in end of April about, are you still like planning on coming? And I think it was about like maybe six students who said no. <laughs> And I was like, okay, hold on. We need to make sure that they get here. And slowly but surely they've been able, not all of them, but most of them to already even arrive in Finland. But everybody has been able to start their studies. Amazing. So some are in Finland, some yeah. in their own countries. Yeah, some are Finland um, in Tampere and some still have sort of either personal reasons or immigration reasons why they haven't been able to move quite yet. So when you're used to having like lots of students arriving at the same time, now they've been like slowly trickling in uh, during the fall semester. So hopefully we can get all of the students settled quite soon. And of course, because, for example, a lot of like, well, not a lot, but some of our programs have like lab work. Mm-hmm. which unfortunately you can't do online. So we're hoping that most students can still also graduate in the um, time that um, is planned. So our international master's programs are always two years. So they still have still have time and the progress of studying seems to be good. 
And are there any factors of the changes that happened over the last year that you see will stick around after this has calmed down to some extent? I think tech is that thing that will stick around, that students and, for example, recruiting officers and people are more used to like providing like we are more used to now providing information in various ways we're just not like websites online or chat rooms uh it's it's like we're thinking about different ways and i think that development will not stop when vaccinations have been done and so on i think we will still go further into making sure that these multi-channel ways of, of reaching out to students is there because, like I said, time differences and such make it still problematic of doing, for example, open days that reach all. I think for the young people, one of the learning lessons is that you can still go ahead and you know plan your future and, and do these things that you always wanted to do, um, regardless if there's a pandemic or not. They might delay your things and plans but it doesn't necessarily mean that you can never go to another country and study there or go into the research that you've always wanted to do it's more about resilience maybe that they've learned and and then universities have learned to look at maybe some of our processes in a new way and given us maybe the extra push to think about different ways of doing something that maybe we are used to doing in one way I think one of the things that happened also when when lockdown started last spring was the fact that everybody, at least in European perspective, but I think also further ahead, the people in this field started to reach out a bit more easier and, and sharing experiences about what we're doing. So I really hope that that never disappears. Through my uh, volunteer work at um, EAIE, European Association for International Education, I already had really good networks with people. But I think the kind of the threshold of, of reaching out and asking, hey, guys, how are you ha- tackling these kinds of issues? Um, that also kind of like we really came together in figuring out how we can still move ahead I think one of the issues also last year was the fact that there was so much work to be done that time for new ideas was based on the um, may- maybe more the necessity than inspiration yeah, <laughs> of yeah. others. But I think one of the things that stuck to me was the fact that I think nobody stopped. Like we just pushed everybody, all the countries, all the universities, we just continued and didn't kind of like put our hands up and say like okay let's forget it and I think that resilience is something that overall is is inspiring that it made sure that nobody stopped (laughs) that we kind of pushed each other along in this journey of of developing new and, and making sure that things continue so I think that was maybe overall kind of the big thing that's for us in Tampere University, kind of made sure that we were pushing along all the time also. Yes, such a good point, because I think even now we're still in this thing and you can forget actually how amazing it is that everyone has kept going and it is exhausting, but we're still going and that's actually worth stopping and and thinking about and and sort of patting yourself on the back. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that's one of the key issues for everyone. 
whether in your international education or any field, is is stop once in a while and look back and be amazed about how much we've done in these months because I keep thinking it's years but it's not really not even one year yet and personally I think one of the things has been that I've I've really learned to trust that networks are there to help you and and whether it's it's in our university or globally together we can definitely definitely tackle this these problems also <laughs> that's absolutely brilliant well um joanna thank you so much for your time today and i wish you all the best with the busy time over the next week and maybe we should get that recording in in a sort of 12 months from now <laughs> yeah definitely let's see how how the world has changed or hopefully we do change but mostly for the better at least <laughs> Joanna's musing on sector knowledge sharing and the resilience of students is really heartening to hear. In the final piece of the Finnish story, here's two senior leaders from Helsinki University, the registrar and the head of student services, to share what long-term implications the changes to admissions alongside reforms to admissions credentialing have meant for their student community. So my name is Esa Hammerlein and I'm what you would call, call in UK the registrar of the university. So I'm in charge of the university services basically and in the leadership discussing then where the university is going and what kind of support services we need for for students and staff and uh, researchers. Fantastic. And Susanna? Yes, thank you. My name is Susanna Niinistä-Sivoranta. I'm Director of Development in the field of Education and Educational Affairs in the University of Helsinki. So I'm responsible for all all the services for students and teachers. And then, of course, I'm supporting our rectorate in different kind of strategic issues related to education. Very interesting field. So in Finland, the universities, of course, we, we do take our students independently so we have we have kind of the legal right to recruit our students on our own but we do all follow kind of a national procedures and national uh, schedules and then in many fields like the big fields medicine or or law or education as examples we do actually organize the recruitment process jointly so all the 14 universities if you have those particular subjects then you have to kind of uh, organize it in collaboration so obviously it means that then when you have to change something all the universities who who do it simultaneously they will have then to negotiate and agree on what kind of procedures would then be substituting the existing or the old ones so in that sense it's a it's a major process where when universities would be then discussing, negotiating and agreeing on these new measures and mechanisms how to take students. Another issue that's, uh, that is uh, relevant to us is, of course, that we are competitive in a, in, in the, in, in a different way than you are in, in, in England or, or Great Britain. Basically, my university, I think we take one in seven applicants when we take uh, recruit students. So it's actually so that there are much more students wanting to get in than we will, we will take. And for this, we have basically in all of our disciplines, we have had entrance exams that we organize to, to applicants. So, then the ministry has now 
the last few years wanted to increase the number of students that we would take based on the national A-level system. And this new mechanism was actually just about to merge when COVID started. So it means that we were kind of changing the system and then we had to change it again because of the COVID and do that together with 14 other universities. Yes, I spoke to your colleague at Alta University. So, yeah, the process seems quite mind boggling, but I didn't realise the aspect that you were already going through a sort of reform and then had sort of this additional change on top. So that's quite a challenge. And I think that the big issue is, of course, it's a challenge for the universities when first you have these 150,000 applicants to the 50,000 places in universities and universities of applied sciences. But at the same time, it's also the the young people who are kind of planning for the future and then the system is changing. So there's not only how to how to cope with the with organizing, developing, designing and organizing the new ways of recruitment, but it's also how to communicate it to the applicants, the young people, and of course their parents and relatives who everyone's worried that how is this new system that's once again because of COVID being changed, how will that affect and what kind of impact it will have to my chances to get the place to study. So it's a huge communication issue at the same time. How have you gone about communicating? Have there been any new ways of, of doing that as well? I think that what the universities have been doing is, of course, we have the national websites where we are updating the information, but then we are also keeping direct contact to the applicants. Once you've submitted your application, of course, we have then ways to to reach them. But perhaps the big issue has, of course, been the national newspapers, as they have been kind of reporting and having articles about this unclear situation I think it was the whole whole spring that we were reading newspapers that descriptions of whether the application procedures are changing and how they are changing and how people, young people, are kind of a feeling that the opportunities are either improving or as mostly, of course, they interview people who feel that they are kind of a <laughs> losing the opportunities with, with, with the changes. But it was not that bad. Susanna will probably also tell you a little bit more about that. But I think that our student selection this last spring was actually a success all in all, even though we had to make a lot of adjustments and changes there. One final thing was whether that system that was put into place in response to COVID, is that something that will continue now? Or which are the parts that will stick around as a result? Oh, well... You have to first understand that we made the adjustments in March and the exam started in late May, I think. So it means that we had less than two months time to plan for the new exams. So when you kind of redesigned everything, of course, it's not so that you can do it exactly the same way now this year. But I'm actually pretty sure that there are a lot of kind of a points that we learned and understood which things work and which won't and then of course we are kind of at the same time learning from covid and the covid situation as to whether there are things that we can do in the situation where the virus is still spreading when there were so many uncertainties last may and everyone was also at the same time much more worried about 
the the threats that's that, that the virus is causing now with the vaccine coming and so i think the whole atmosphere is different and therefore probably also some of the uh, solutions that we have this year will be different from last year so we don't copy that what we did last year Thank you. Yes, definitely a dynamic situation, I suppose. And Susanna, great to have you on the podcast as well, because thank you. I was very keen to talk to you about what the impact was on student admissions, obviously, and surprisingly, many universities have actually found that there's been an, an uptick in admissions. So any details on that and also any tools or technologies that you use to as Essa mentioned, communicate with students effectively or go through that process as painlessly as possible, I suppose. Yeah, maybe I could answer first for that. What did actually change? Because we had this national reform going on and the change in that was that actually we were taking part of our applicants only with exam from the high school. So that was one change. And then we had this change during the COVID that we had to actually build up a two-stage entrance examinations and we won't actually use that two-stage examinations anymore but we will use some digital tools in the future also that this was the answer for your question about that do we actually learn something or do we have any ideas how to sort of uh, work in the future we built up a call center service. I'm not sure if it's a new one. It's sort of quite traditional if you think about a call center, but it was a call center for students and that was set up for applicants to help with technical problems during their tests. And also it was essential that the applicants, they were well informed all the time about the changes going on. So that was something I think it was really widely raised this service students or applicants they were really happy that they they knew where to call if they had any problems and then of course social media was important also even though we had just traditional infos and uh, and tried to communicate uh, like that but social media was also a very important i know that students and applicants they had also these forums in social media that actually our admission services they were also taking part of to those discussions so I think that was also important information for applicants. Are there complications around the types of students that you have and the diversity of students so if you're dealing with international students in their home countries versus students that have made it to Finland how did you go about mediating the variety of students that you work with as well? I think it's too early to say if we succeed or not. I think we succeed because the number of applicants during last spring and also now when we just had a, another entrance period, we increased those numbers. So I think the variety is even better than before. But it's too early to say, is it because of the COVID or is it because of the reform or what is the reason for that? Is it just because we have done so many years work for that? University of Helsinki would be more and more successful in this. So, so it's early to say. This is not actually about the entrance, but we have been discussing a lot about also well-being because students are feeling alone now. 
and we are also quite work overload for all of us is is quite high now so i would recommend to read anything i'm not sure if it it can be found also in english but our professor minna huotilainen she is from university of helsinki and she has been her research is in that how you can survive in this kind of situation when your cognitive capacity is very overload all the time so how can you survive in this kind of working life and studying life and i know that she has a couple of good books that you you should read that's a fantastic recommendation and yeah anything well-being at the moment is always very popular exactly so thank you for that I'll take another aspect from her, and that's not from COVID, but it's about you being physically moving at the same time when you are kind of doing something creative. So for everyone, because now there's a lot of people who are a little bit depressed and wondering how to cope with, and then you can't go or sometimes perhaps go to places where you were you are used to. So just to move around, so that will make your brain work also better and gives you positive thoughts that comes also from her she's also organizing uh, i think uh, courses where you can go to gym and at the same time uh, listen to lectures or, or participate that was before covid yeah it was yeah yeah but it fits also to this situation yes, i think exactly <laughs> and Esther, do you take on that practice are you now sort of wandering around and and you know when you're thinking about work Yeah, well, we have actually a nice competition, Susanna and me and our, and our directors about walking and at the same time having our meetings. So we've noticed that we actually concentrate better and we listen more when we are moving at the same time. So we have our kind of uh, AirPods or whatever you wear on you and then have your Zoom meeting while you are wandering around such a fantastic idea and it's also one of the reasons why I love podcasts so you know you can go for these sure. walks in nature yep. and uh, listen to some amazing ideas yes any final thoughts on recruitment admissions and use of technology before I sign off I would only say that the sky is probably the limit to where all this will lead to so so I'm sure there will be a lot of kind of uh, people who listen to this and wonder where to go and now I think with the all the this big leap that all the universities are now doing, we are offering great experiences, either so that you want to come and study with us or then you want to take a peek into the MOOCs that the universities are offering and then perhaps try to join us. That's true. And as long as we have still on-campus exams, we will also need more digital tools to have those on-campus online exams. So this is our next challenge. That's all for this week. If you enjoyed this episode, you can also check out our past episodes, one with Chris Hedlund from University of Lincoln, who talked about creating a virtual campus in Minecraft, which was downloaded over 8,000 times last year. And there's also another one with Santiago Onzano, the president of IE University, who used the WOW Room to run virtual events and talked about the creative ideas the university had for student engagement, including online DJ sets with Grammy-nominated DJs and cook-along classes with Michelin-style chefs all pretty cool that's the end of this episode i do hope you enjoyed and if you did make sure you drop us a quick review or rating wherever you listen to your podcast the algorithms love it as do the humans who think oh i might go and check that out 
Thanks so much for listening into this episode and huge thank you to all of my guests and Salesforce.org for supporting the series. 